Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. This is episode 140, Trauma-Informed Teaching. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the term trauma-informed teaching has been tossed around in many academic circles. We're told students are traumatized by the pandemic, the changes in education at all levels, and the increased level of uncertainty in their lives. But for many of us, the word trauma seems inappropriate or an exaggeration. Trauma is what happens when you're in a car accident and got a broken back, right? Or if you've been the victim of a violent crime. But just having to change how you teach or how you learn isn't traumatic, is it? Aren't we just overstating the case? Isn't trauma-informed teaching really just another buzzword or catchphrase that doesn't mean anything? Also, isn't this more of a K-12 issue, not a higher ed issue? Our students are adults, aren't they? By definition, because our students are adults, they can handle trauma better than a six-year-old first grader or a 13-year-old high school freshman, right? In this episode, Adam and I are going to talk about what trauma really is, why and how we, both ourselves as teachers and our students, are experiencing it, what makes it worse, and what can make it less bad. We'll link to our sources in the show notes as usual. So let's begin with what trauma really is. So the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, defines trauma as, and I quote, an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So I want to draw attention to a couple of parts of this definition that kind of respond to the criticisms that Denor gave in the you know in the last couple of minutes, which we've heard from a lot of people saying, "Oh, trauma-informed teaching, you know, such a buzzword, blah blah." Okay, the first thing to notice here about this is that violence is not inherently part of trauma. It's one kind of event that may lead to trauma, but it's not the only kind. The second thing to notice is trauma doesn't have to involve anything physical. It can be 100% emotional and still be trauma. And the third thing is, no, it's not always a one-off event like a car crash. Sometimes it's an ongoing situation that causes ongoing trauma. So what is happening in this ongoing, generally nonviolent, usually non-physical event, the pandemic, that is creating so much trauma? Why is the panic an ongoing traumatic event? The pandemic and the public health responses to it have created trauma in a couple different ways, isolation and ambiguity. Human beings are not solitary creatures. Like all great apes, we are social animals. Being deprived of in-person contact can create trauma for our brains, which expect and need a certain amount of contact and connection to stay sane and healthy. Right now, and since the pandemic started, Human beings have been dealing with the fear of others who might be disease vectors and the loss of human contact on a grand scale. Being in isolation has been really tough on our psyches and many of us are not handling it well at all. 
The second thing is our brains, our human brains generally don't deal especially well with ambiguity. And everyone wearing masks all the time has created one form of ambiguity in the form of the uncanny valley. And this phenomenon is what happens when we see something or someone that looks almost human, but it isn't. It's too close to human, but it's not quite close enough to be human. And usually uncanny valley is used to refer to how most people react to very close to human looking robots or dolls or mannequins. And our brains react with aversion and even disgust to something that looks almost, but not quite human. And this is also the source of the creepy doll feeling that we get when we see, for example, Chucky from Child's Play. The uncanny valley feeling is a big response that our minds and our bodies have to ambiguity. This thing that looks almost human, but not quite human. And with masking, we lose the bottom two thirds of a person's face. The only thing we really see that looks human is their eyes. And so that feeling of ambiguity is ramped up when we interact with other masked individuals. It's uncomfortable. Our brains in the background are ranting, something is off, something is wrong here, we might be in danger, we gotta be on alert. And that gets really tiring, really fast. But we're all trying to pretend that we're not stressed at all and to keep on producing the same amount of work that we were trying to produce or were accustomed to producing before the pandemic hit. There's also a lot of ambiguity about what we can expect, both now and in the future. The pandemic is not going to be on a nice, tight, planned timeline, as we've already found out when masking and other public health restrictions were relaxed. And instead of going back to normal, we got more surges of new variants that got around cloth masks and were transmissible even by vaccinated people. Our brains don't deal well with that kind of ambiguity either. In general, ambiguity is bad for our brains unless we can take a break from it. If your research is about things that are ambiguous, for example, you can set the research down and do other things when it gets to be too much. But we can't just set reality down and go back to living as we did before the pandemic, even though that's what our traumatized brains need. They just are not built for this much ongoing uncertainty. So the combination of we are social beings, but being social is dangerous. People in masks trigger the uncanny valley, that feeling of disgust and fear. And we can't be certain about anything. Everything is ambiguous. This is not kind to our brains. And let's be honest, we've all been fighting with these conflicts of our needs and the reality of the situation for going on three years now. As Denor and I record this, it is early March of 2022. And there doesn't appear to be any clear end in sight. Oh, and we haven't even mentioned the more obvious sources of trauma like friends, family members, and neighbors dying of COVID, often when we can't even be at their bedsides as they pass because of the risk of transmission. We haven't talked about the trauma of going to work or school every day either, wondering, oh, is this going to be the day my mask fails? Or is this going to be the day a new variant gets past it to get me sick or put me in the hospital or even infecting me asymptomatically so I can bring it home to grandma or to my one-year-old? All of these things are trauma. And we need to acknowledge that they're happening to all of us. Even if we want to pretend I'm doing fine, I haven't changed at all. Yes, you have. We are all involved in an ongoing car crash. Bessel van der Kolk, who studies trauma, says trauma can change the brain in three ways that are important to education and educators. First, the brain's threat perception goes up, which means the person is more likely to get triggered by normally non-threatening things. Some people incorrectly label this as being oversensitive. It's not. 
It's the traumatized brain on guard against anything that might harm or traumatize it further. Second, the brain's filtering system gets disrupted. And so this means the person has a harder time engaging with material or with other people or focusing on what they're trying to do, because instead they're being distracted by noises, smells, and visuals in their environment that their brain would normally just filter out. And with their threat perception already on alert, there's a greater chance those usually filtered out things can come across to the brain as more threats. Finally, the brain's self-sensing and self-perception systems change the way the person feels about themselves. If you've ever had a student who had depression or anxiety, you've seen this kind of effect. They feel they are incompetent or worthless, which makes it really difficult to care about the nervous system of the Newton biology class, for example. So let's accept that, yes, we are all experiencing trauma, and getting past it is not as simple as meditating or doing yoga or going for a run. What does trauma look like? This is something that a lot of professionals have asked, you know, how am I supposed to know what trauma looks like in my students? And how about in my colleagues? So let's talk for a minute about what trauma looks like in college students and in higher ed professionals. Most of the work on trauma-informed teaching has, yes, focused on K-12 students and K-12 teachers. And this is understandable, all right? Those are the ones that are really seen as on the front lines. You know, being in a K-12 school is required. College is optional, right? You still have a choice about whether you're going to go to college. But we really should also look at what it looks like in higher education because our workforce is traumatized, our student body is traumatized, and these are things that we do need to deal with. So. Here's a list of some of the symptoms and effects of trauma that we might see in our students. Difficulty focusing on what they're doing, including difficulty retaining and recalling what they learn. So we might see this in lower test scores. We might also see this in their inability to participate in class. You call on them and they're all, oh, I forgot what I was going to ask. Or, you know, or they're sitting there and they're really looking bleak and they're not taking notes. They're just a zombie, right? They just, they, they aren't connecting with what you're doing. And another thing is increased absences, both from class and other activities that you might have set up, say, you know, maybe you have a, uh, maybe in a biology class, you go on a regular field trip walk to observe in the real world, and they're just not showing up to anything. And those increased absences might be because they forget they're supposed to be in class, but it might also be something as simple as their trauma has tired them out so much that they couldn't get out of bed. They may have difficulty regulating their emotions. We might see a lot of students who blow up or melt down compared to pre-pandemic levels because students like us are overwhelmed and sometimes a seemingly minor stressor is the straw that broke the camel's back. We also see this when students are more and more afraid of taking risks. Now, our current student population is already pretty afraid of taking risks. Thank you, No Child Left Behind. But this can show up when we're trying to use a new learning method or we're assigning an assignment that they've never seen before, they've never done this kind of assignment before, and they freeze up. And they're just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. You know, you might hear a lot of that. And part of you may think, of course you can do this. You're a student. Well, but they're a traumatized student. Our students may face heightened anxiety about deadlines, group work, anything requiring presentation or public speaking, or quizzes, tests, exams. I even before the pandemic, these were not stress-free activities, but now you combine the stress of having to perform and having a good chunk of the grade writing on it combined with dealing with trauma and trying to manage everything, and it can be overwhelming for a lot of students. 
And that can often lead to increased levels of anger. Like one of the things that a lot of research on trauma has shown is that people who have to repress their trauma and pretend like everything's normal, they develop anger management issues. You know, they suddenly start blowing up a lot. They lose their temper a lot. We might also see students dissociate where, you know, maybe they're waiting to present and they literally go glassy eyed, you know, and you look at them and you see they're not really all there. They, they have dissociated. Or when they're stressed, you may suddenly get, you know, dozens of emails from a student. I don't understand how to do this. I don't understand how to do this. And no matter how well you've explained it, they keep on coming back with, yeah, but I don't understand how to do this. Or repeated begs for extra credit or repeated begs for adjusting their grade. And although it may just seem like more of the same, you know, we've seen this from students before. They do the grade begging and they do the extra credit begging and all that. The fact is the environment they're doing it in now, the environment their brain is in now is very different. And so what they're doing isn't intended to tick us off. It's literally their brain trying to find some way to find equilibrium, to find certainty, to find predictability, all of which it's been denied ever since the pandemic started. Our students may have increased withdrawal from class and may feel isolated from their classmates. We've seen this when students in group projects don't communicate with one another. And it can be frustrating to the group members who are doing the work and it's frustrating to us teachers but this may be a trauma response where our students are so overwhelmed, they're so fatigued by this constant stress that they may be too tired to effectively work with the group. Mm -hmm. And you can also see that isolation, the student who goes and sits in the very, very back of the room and puts their computer up and hides behind it. Yes, we've had those students before. Maybe we should consider that those students were also traumatized. You know, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that class clowns, are often the most traumatized kid in the room. Now, in our colleagues and ourselves, these things can also show up, and this is how you might recognize them, say, in the person in the next office over or in yourself. We may have difficulty focusing on what we're doing, including difficulty keeping our trains of thought during lecture, remembering student questions, and keeping track of in-class interactions. We might also have real difficulty going to work. You might wake up and feel like, I just need to go back to bed for another six hours. Or maybe you just feel you haven't had any downtime. You haven't had any relaxation. And of course you haven't, because you can't set reality aside and go back to the way we've always lived right now. It's not possible. And so you might feel just completely wiped out in ways that you know don't correlate with how much physical activity you've had or how much mental activity you've been putting into whatever it is you're doing. It just feels like, where is this coming from? Someone dropped a load of exhaustion on me. We may have difficulty keeping our tempers when things get stressful. We may get annoyed quicker. We may cry at the drop of the hat because we're also overwhelmed. And that one comment or that one question at that time may have just been the wrong timing, the wrong thing to ask or say. And like students, our brains are also dealing with this trauma and we're trying to navigate it the best we can, but we don't have a lot to rely on. We all have conflicts with all these new programs that administration wants us to put in place. But in the last two years, especially, we might have huge anxiety about new methods or new programs. I mean, remember when we all had to suddenly, oh, it's the middle of March and we're all going online, March 2020. And none of us had any experience in that unless we were lucky enough to have taught online a little bit. And now your anxiety is through the roof, especially when you're worried about how is this going to look on my record if I fail, if the program fails, if I get terrible student reviews, what am I going to, you know, and suddenly now there's tons of stressors that would be normal stressors to feel, but they're 
exacerbated by the fact that you're also dealing with trauma. We may have anxiety about our own deadlines for writing, for grading, or even anxiety about giving lectures or having meetings with students. Because even though these were all part and parcel of the game before the pandemic, the stress of the pandemic was not part of that. And now we're trying to do what used to be with the stress of what currently is. And it's sometimes really difficult to juggle those. Some folks may say, I just wish they would let me teach from home. I don't want to go on campus. I don't want to interact with people any more than is absolutely necessary. I want to stay in the safety of my home. And again, that is your brain saying anywhere outside controlled environment of house, not safe. If I leave my apartment, I'm putting myself in danger. I developed mild agoraphobia during the first uh, two semesters of the pandemic because I was teaching completely from home. And when the time came for our for our university to tell us you got to go back on campus, I fought that. I resisted it like crazy because I was convinced if I go back on campus, I will get sick and I will die. And it was a very real existential fear, very visceral fear. If you feel like that, you're not alone. That is a trauma response. Personally, we may also find ourselves getting involved in unhealthy relationships and friendships because our ability to vet people is not working as well as it would if we were not traumatized. Now, what makes trauma worse? During and after World War II, Britain's Ministry of Information produced posters which said, keep calm and carry on. This British stiff upper lipism did its best to suppress an entire generation's trauma about the war. But this isn't the only time we've seen this kind of response to trauma. Put on your big boy pants, get over it already. And other similar phrases have been used in the same way keep calm and carry on was used to tell people to suppress their feelings and go on as if everything was normal. We see this in research on many marginalized and ethnic and racial communities in the United States. Never showing your real emotions about the trauma you're experiencing is a social value causing enormous damage to children, adolescents, and adults. Now, many times, suppressed trauma emerges as depression, anxiety, anger management problems, and suicidal ideation. So having to suppress trauma and act as if everything is normal is actually not a good method here. Yes, we may be very frustrated that our students are zoning out more, tuning in less, and generally not acting the way we expect college students to act, but we can either be angry with them for being traumatized, which is really not a good look, or we can recognize both our trauma and theirs and take steps to make things maybe a little less bad for everyone. So some of those expectations we have that really should be set down by the wayside when teaching in a trauma-informed way, let's start with hard deadlines. Get rid of them. Just get rid of them. Allow a little wiggle room for students to turn things in whenever possible. So what if their essay is two days late? And please do not say that thing about, well, in the real world, they'll get in trouble at work. Actually, most times at work, if they say, I need another couple of days on that report, they get those couple of days. All right, hard deadlines need to go the way of the dodo. Get rid of fuzzy expectations. Look at your assignment sheets. Do they actually give step-by-step, -step, clearly worded expectations for how to perform a task or complete the assignment? You may be surprised at how vague your guidance is. One of the things I've done is taken workshops on how to write effective rubrics so that my students have clear directions and clear ideas of, Here's what a C paper looks like. Here's what a B paper looks like. Here's what an A paper looks like. Because while those grade levels and those quality of papers are super clear in our heads, 
our students do not live in our brains as far as we know. And so the clearer we can be with them, the less vague that, that is, and that reduces uncertainty. We talked about how vagueness and ambiguity are really tough for the brain to deal with. Let's reduce that ambiguity as, as best we can in our classes. And another thing we need to give up, and this is going to be hard for some folks, is being the sage on the stage. You probably need to change how you're presenting information to students. A one-shot lecture where they have to scramble to write down everything you said, that's stressful even when they're not dealing with trauma. When they're dealing with trauma, it's practically impossible. So consider recording your lectures for students to listen to or watch before class and replace your in-class lectures with in-class activities where students work together in groups. This also, in addition to allowing them to stop, rewind, slow down, look at the captions, you know, all of that is helpful for learning, but it also creates collaboration when they're doing the in-class work. And research shows that collaboration is critical to helping traumatized students learn. There are many other things that make trauma worse, and too many of them exist in the traditional classroom. Make sure your students get choices, a voice in what's happening, support in what they're doing, connection with you and their peers, and safety, which includes allowing students to make mistakes without penalizing them for this important step in learning. Now, we've talked about what makes trauma worse in classrooms, so let's talk about what makes it less bad. So, in trauma-informed teaching, safety is a necessary condition for learning, and learning is the primary goal. So this means you've got to provide not just a safe physical environment and a safe emotional environment, meaning that you have to allow students to get up and leave the room if they're triggered by something that's in the in the work. All right. That's a safe emotional environment, safe physical environment. They know that no one's going to come, you know, barging in to harm them. Right. Their needs have to be respected. That's all part of creating a safe physical and emotional environment. But you also need to create a safe learning environment. And a safe learning environment is where mistakes are a natural part of the process, where deadlines are flexible, and where support and explanation are always available. So here's three broad principles to use to reduce trauma in your classrooms. Principle number one is connection before curriculum. And this is a difficult principle for a lot of college professors. It's easier for K-12 teachers. They're used to being more directly involved with their students' lives. They talk to the kids' parents. We don't do that. And we, as college professors, we're so used to focusing on communicating the course content, the curriculum, that we tend to ignore the fact that our students are human beings first and students a very distant second. Denor and I have talked about this on more than one occasion. In fact, I believe we start out in our first episode, we say we teach students, we don't teach classes. And that change in semantics makes all the difference. By saying we teach students, we're focusing on them as people first. We're not focusing on, here's all the information we've planned months in advance for this class, and we're going to power through it no matter what, because that's not going to lead to effective learning for our students. I saw an anecdote on Facebook that I just realized needs to be in here. Someone tweeted about how, or I think it was on Tumblr actually, because it was longer than a tweet. And they said, you know, our Arabic teacher who is from Iran noticed that we were all down. And he said, why are you all down? What's going on here? And we told him, well, you know, the pandemic and everything's kind of, and he says, nope, nope. We are not going to talk about vocabulary right now. Everybody get up. I am teaching you an Iranian folk dance. And then we spent 15 minutes dancing. That is teaching the student before you worry about the subject. And I love that. 
if we don't connect with our students on a human level and they're traumatized, they're not going to be able to follow even the best and most interesting course content. They are going to be stressed, distracted, and unable to focus, and that is not their fault. They are not choosing to space out. They are not choosing to tune out. That is not actually something they are choosing. That is their brain having a trauma response. So spend time every day to connect with your students as the human beings they are. I know that Denora, when students are coming into his class, he'll play music. And then sometimes they'll even talk about the music for a minute. Well, now he knows more about his students than he did five minutes ago, and he knows them as people. And like he said, focus on teaching the student, not just the subject. And yeah, that might mean talking to six different students about how to study that is less scary and more helpful than their standard go-to of read and reread. And you might find that each of them struggles with studying differently, which means you've got to help them design study methods that work for each of them as individuals because they are human beings, not just learning machines. What you will find though, and what has been reported by many teachers who have made this shift is your stress levels will also go down as you get to know your students as people. You'll get some of that human connection you've been craving, just as they will. And that goes a long, long way toward improving the learning process. The second principle, simplify and scaffold. Right now your students and you are trying to swim through a river rapids. Demanding everyone keep their head above water without help is unreasonable and unrealistic. It's time to make your assignments clearer even if it might feel like handholding. For simplifying, there's a fantastic method for this called the transparent teaching method. We've mentioned it before and we'll link to it in the show notes. Marianne Winklemus, formerly of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas or UNLV, developed this method of creating assignment guidelines that tell a student everything they need to know about how to do the assignment you want them to do. Another way to simplify is to ask yourself, what are the core things students need to learn? Is a weekly reflection paper necessary? Could it be a once per month reflection? If there are valid pedagogical reasons for daily or weekly exercises and worksheets, communicate that to your students so they don't feel buried in busy work. A third thing is to use lower stakes formative assignments more and higher stakes summative assessments less. This might mean giving a weekly low stakes quiz instead of a big midterm, which contains a third of their grade, for example. For scaffolding, break big assignments down into smaller pieces. Most of your students have never been taught how to break the big project down into small steps. So demonstrating how to do that by taking, for example, the research paper and breaking it down into smaller graded increments, that can really help your students understand the process they're trying to learn. Make sure you spell out the why of tasks and assignments, not just the what. You're doing this exercise to get practice in doing these three kinds of equations. It's like baseball practice in the batting cage. Or you're creating an annotated bibliography so you know why you chose the sources you did and how they can help you write your research paper. Principle three, focus on flexibility. Give students multiple ways to approach course content. Does it have to be a written essay? Could it be a podcast or a video instead? Do they all have to take a multiple choice test or can they write a paper instead of the final exam? Give students ways to play to their strengths so they can demonstrate they've learned the content. Try not to be too rigid about how they can demonstrate it. Finally, don't take it personally if your students are unable to focus or if it seems like they're tuned out of the lecture. 
it's very likely not you. Our students' brains are traumatized, remember? Focusing is hard at the best of times and pretty much impossible when you're dealing with trauma. Now, when it comes to our experiences with trauma-informed teaching, my big experience was shifting to online teaching at the beginning of the pandemic. And I wanted to bring as much of my in-class experience as I could to a new way of teaching. And I thought that the best way to do that was to simplify my approach. So what I did is I started having really flexible due dates. I started giving my students multiple chances on quizzes and on exams so that if they messed up the first time, it wasn't going to be the end result for their grade. They could review, they could study again, they could retake the same material, but slightly different questions because all of us are dealing with the strain of dealing with NOME. Anomie is the sociology term that means we're dealing with normlessness and we're dealing with a lot of negative effects from it. And a pandemic that is not by choice is very much a source of anomie because we have had to change what our responsibilities are. I know a lot of our students have had to deal with more caregiving obligations since the pandemic started. Our students may be working longer hours to help their families because they now may have to take on a bigger role as far as the income being brought into the home. And that means that that's an additional form of stress and trauma that goes hand in hand with the stress of a pandemic that came through forces beyond their control. I've done a lot of the things that we suggest here already. I've been very big on universal design in my pedagogy, and that's very close to trauma-informed teaching. So like Denor said, you know, flexible due dates. There's really no valid reason not to do that. Allowing students to retake something, that allows them to improve their understanding. Okay, again, really no valid reason not to do that. And I used to give tons and tons of assignments, and I still do, but now I let students have a choice about what they're gonna do. I do require a certain set of assignments that are just like, this is the core, if you pass this, you get a C. But I no longer do a quiz every single week. Okay, they get five quizzes. I no longer require them to do a reflection every single week. And I've cut down how much the reflection has to cover. It used to be, give me two paragraphs on every single lecture. And now it's just, okay, tell me the three top things that you've learned in this module, in this unit. Okay. And so it reduced it to about maybe two pages of writing instead of nine. All right. Think about how much time your students have for your class compared to all the other classes that they're taking. Really, it's about being kind. It's about recognizing that you've got a bunch of kids who metaphorically are coming to class with broken arms and broken legs. Well, then you can't expect them to do handwritten assignments, can you? Because their arms are broken. You got to find another way to work around this. And I've had some people say, you know, when I've brought this up in forums and stuff, well, that adds to my workload. Actually, it might decrease your workload. If you write a very clear rubric, grading becomes easier. Because now, instead of having to read in depth every single word, you can look at it and say, okay, did they meet this? Did they meet that? Did they meet that? Did they meet that? Done. So that's what we have for you in episode 140. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Android. We've decided to no longer publish this podcast to Spotify. So if you found us there, please take a look at Apple Podcasts or some other podcast app. I'm sure we'll be there. We're hosted on Blueberry.com, and we'd really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 141, when Adam and I will talk about how to make decisions when you're feeling stuck. 
You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.